This is a talk by Joel titled Synchronicity on the Mystical Path, recorded February 13th, 2000, at the Center for Sacred Sciences in Eugene, Oregon. So the basis of this talk this morning is a question that was put in the question box by VIP, and here's this question. Synchronicity. Is it kind of like a cosmic radar? Seems to increase in proportion to my seriousness about walking the spiritual path. Is this always going to be the case? I.e., do you, Joel, in your gnosis, experience a chronic, sustained level of synchronicity? <laughs> Sounds like a disease. <laughs> uh, he goes on. Recent examples. I was thinking about posing this question to the question box. At that moment, you mentioned the phenomenon of synchronicity to illustrate something in your talk. Then you spoke of having spiritual dreams, which I have recently begun to have lots of. Another form of synchronicity, I suppose. Last night, I had a vivid dream of a child crying in great grief and despair because both her parents had beat her in a game. I could see that she despaired of ever winning. Then in today's talk, you used the example of a benevolent parent encouraging a child's confidence by letting them occasionally win. It's fun, synchronicity, but will it change or cease at some point? So this is a, an excellent question uh, because I think, uh, in my experience anyway, and if you read through the literature, most spiritual seekers who start on a path begin to experience the kinds of things that Vip was talking about. So let's begin with trying to get some handle on what synchronicity means. And as I said earlier, Carl Jung, the great psychologist, was the first one to coin the term in the way we're using it today and the way it's come to be used in spiritual, psychological, paranormal circles and so forth. And here are a couple of things that he said about it. A meaningful coincidence of two or more events where something other than the probability of chance is observed. For instance, Vip's example of him thinking about posing the question of synchronicity, and at that very moment, I'm speaking about synchronicity to illustrate something. Now, it could be just chance, and sometimes we have to weigh that, but sometimes there'll be three or four events that happen that start to really defy the probabilities, and that really gets your attention. And then Jung says, the simultaneous occurrence of meaningful equivalencies in heterogeneous, causally unrelated processes. Don't you love these psychologists? Uh, heterogeneously, causally unrelated processes. Well, again, your thoughts might be going on in a chain, and then another uh, chain of events might be happening outside. And suddenly they uh, come together they, they, in, a, in a meaningful way, but there's no detectable cause that has uh, connected them. So we can actually uh, look at synchronicity as part of a larger category of paranormal phenomena, as it's usually called today. The way I use synchronicity actually is even more restricted than Jung's version. I went back and read that little essay in preparation of this talk, and he really basically means all paranormal phenomena. 
in the West, uh, paranormal phenomena in spiritual literature are usually called miracles or favors or graces. And in the East, they're pretty much all lumped together under the term cities, S-I-D-D-H-I-S. And that's the term I'm going to use here because it's convenient to have one term. Then we can divide cities into three classes, uh, basic classes. One would be what we might call or consider physical miracles. Things like walking on water or walking through walls or levitating or flying through the air, you know, without uh, the aid of airplanes and so forth. Faith healing uh, is another prominent one. And then we could look at them in terms of those phenomena that fall under the category of extrasensory perceptions, which we could define as a non-local communication outside of space and time. So we have clairvoyance, we have telepathy, uh, precognition, that's seeing into the future, and so forth. So these are experiences we have where we receive some sort of knowledge, but there's no apparent signal propagating through space and time to give us this knowledge, and especially if there's precognition. And then lastly, we could talk about synchronistic occurrences. That is what we were just talking about before in terms of Jung's definitions, a meaningful coincidence of ordinary everyday events. You wake up in the morning and you pick up the newspaper and there's a headline about uh, something unusual. Oh, the God 2000 conference. And then a friend of yours gives you the number of a spiritual organization, and it's three digits and 2,000. And then later in the day, a friend of yours tells you about a spiritual dream they had, uh, and 2,000 is a prominent number. And then you start to see this 2,000 keeps popping up, and there's no apparent causal relationship, but it's almost like a message is uh, being delivered to you to pay attention to 2,000. So then we can ask three questions about these paranormal phenomena, these cities. Do they exist? How can we explain them? And what is their value? So let's begin by asking the first question. Do they exist? Do they actually occur? Or are they imaginative in the common way we use that? when we say, oh, it's just your imagination. You didn't really see a ghost, it was just your imagination. Now, let me put this into context, because from the broadest point of view, whether something exists or not depends on the worldview of the person to whom it's occurring. So, for instance, in our culture, if someone hears a rock speaking to them, we usually say, oh, they're just imagining that. We don't think that rocks actually speak. In the Ojibwa Indian culture, rocks certainly do speak. They have a different worldview. So we are not talking in absolute sense whether these things exist or not, but we are talking generally from, let's say, a modern scientific point of view. So let's begin by looking at physical miracles, the things like walking through walls and flying through the air and so forth. And I think uh, most Westerners are very skeptical about such events actually occurring. Now, personally, I would not rule out anything absolutely. 
But I must say that I have never seen anyone levitate. I have never seen anyone walk through a wall. I have never seen anyone walk on water. And I have never heard a first-hand, credible eyewitness account. I have heard of people who went to India who heard another story from somebody else about somebody else levitating. But I have never heard from someone that I know and trust, just trust in, in the sense of their good sense, come and tell me they saw any of those kinds of things. There's actually a funny story that I read, oh, a couple of years ago, I think, in the Register Guard, about a woman prophetess down in California today who had a small following, and she announced that she was going to walk on water. And she announced the day and... Some members of the press showed up, and all her following uh, showed up. I think it was on the Sultan Sea uh, down there in Southern California. But anyway, some big body of water. And they all gathered at the shore, and she asked her followers, do you really believe and have faith that I can walk on this water? And they all said, yes. And she said, well, then it won't be necessary to do it. And they all went home. <laughs> That's the closest... Uh, I've ever come to having, as I said, uh, experience or hearing a credible first-hand account of that sort of major physical miracle. I personally think, now I'm giving you my personal opinions, and maybe some of you have seen somebody walk on water, and your opinion will then certainly be different from mine. I personally think that a lot of these accounts come from experiences people have in meditation or in dreams or in visions. For instance, levitation. It's very common for people who get into deep absorptions in meditation to feel like they are actually levitating. And in fact, if no one else was around to check you out in a consensus reality, you would be experiencing levitation. It really feels like that. Uh, often people, especially in cultures other than ours, have very powerful experiences in uh, dreams or visionary experiences, and because the worldview is different, those experiences are attributed with an objective reality that we do not necessarily attribute uh, to those things. So just to give you one example, the story of Jesus walking on water, which you find in several of the Gospels, is very interesting. Uh, it is told from the point of view of Jesus' disciples taking this boat and going out to sea, and then uh, there's a storm late at night, and Jesus comes out, and they see him, and then Peter walks out uh, on the water. He says, oh, Lord, is it really you? And Jesus says, yes, and Peter says, well, let me come to you. And Jesus says, well, come on. So Peter starts to walk out, and then he starts to get nervous, and he starts to sink, and he says, Lord, save me. And Jesus says, oh, you see, you didn't really have faith, but come on, I'll help you, and they go back to the boat together and uh, go to the other shore or whatever. But if you think about this, there's some interesting details in the story. First of all, they ship out in the evening. Jesus is still on shore. And then it's 3 o'clock in the morning. 3 o'clock in the morning. And they say specifically, three of this, it's deep into the night. It sounds to me like a dream Peter had. In the dream, he sees Jesus walking to him. And this, these events happen. And it is tremendously significant and important to him. And indeed, the story contains a, an important spiritual uh, teaching. And he tells it, and 
through the telling and another telling and so forth. The detail that's the dream is unimportant compared to the teaching. So again, this is my personal view of how some of these reports come about. Or let me put it this way, how we can understand them from a more modern scientific perspective. Now, it's also true that spiritual teachers have been known to perform magic tricks, sleight of hand tricks, you know, that any magician that you would go see uh, for entertainment will perform. <coughs> In a book called Shamanic Voices by Joan Halifax, uh, she recounts how a, a Norwegian explorer, Rasmussen, was traveling around the Arctic and visiting all these Eskimo Native American communities, and he was very interested in the shamans, and he spent a lot of time interviewing them and talking to them. And at one place he went, he noticed that the shaman was performing these magic tricks, I mean, sleight-of-hand tricks, and he saw what was going on, and he took the shaman aside, or when they were alone, and he, he said, what's going on here? I know you're, you're not really pulling stones out of the air. You've got them up your sleeve. And the shaman said, well, you know, he said, I live alone and the people are sometimes kind of uh, frightened of me and uh, I have to, you know, have some way to defend myself. So I do these things so they believe I have these powers and that protects me. But he still was a, a genuine shaman. He wasn't a charlatan across the board. This was just something he felt he had to do because he lived a strange life and outside of the normal tribal life. And uh, sometimes people would blame him for you know, bad fishing or whatever, and they could uh, actually do them a lot of damage. Now, I have heard and actually occasionally experienced minor alterations in the environment, physical alterations. You're looking for something and you look in a closet and you know you looked right there and then you come back and look and it's there. Uh, that sort of thing. And again, it's very difficult to tell whether maybe this was your imagination, or maybe you looked but just didn't see it the first time, or whatever. But within the physics of modern science, it is actually possible that such things can happen. Highly improbable, but not beyond the realm of physical possibility. So it could be that little alterations in the physical environment that don't seem to belong to a chain of uh, causality can take place. The big exception here, I think, is faith healing. And I think faith healing is well attested to historically and continues to be well attested to today. Faith healing here meaning people getting well and cured without any cause that anybody can detect. And so this is something that I think is, no matter what your worldview, is a genuine recognizable phenomenon. So... That's my personal opinion of these heavy-duty physical miracles. That's the way I look at them. Now, let's look at ESP, extrasensory perception. Non-local communication outside of space and time. I personally have many experiences with telepathy. That is, communication between people without any signal propagating through space. So, those of you who have read my book, know that uh, for a while I had a secretary who then became very important on my spiritual path, Samantha, and we had many, many incidences of this kind of telepathy, some of them which, which were just very mundane. I would be sitting behind my desk and I'd say, um, 
Samantha, could you get so-and-so on the phone, an agent or something? And she was already dialing the number, things like that. Or I'd be about to say, Samantha, could you bring us some coffee? And in she'd walk with two cups of coffee. When these things happen occasionally, then you say, oh, well, maybe that's just chance. But when it is constantly happening in a, in a consistent way, it just defies belief that it would be purely by chance. And then I had one experience with her that was a major experience in terms of the synchronicity of the events. We both attended a workshop. It was a workshop where we were instructed to go through a visual journey. You know, they played a little music and we lay down, closed our eyes, and the facilitator started us off saying something like, well, you're walking down a path and it's green grass on either side and the sun is shining, and then you were supposed to continue that visualization. So I did, and I had this long, uh, stunning, vivid visualization with all these various adventures on the way. And then when Samantha and I were driving back from the workshop together, she started telling me her visualization before I had told her mine. And I literally, she got halfway through, I had to pull the car off the road. I couldn't believe it. it everything was slightly different, but basically the same visualization. There were sharks in mine, there were dolphins in hers. That sort of variation of detail. But otherwise, it was just stunning. And so it convinced me that this is not just a matter of coincidence. And perhaps some of you have had that sort of telepathic experience. Even more astonishing to me were the precognitive dreams I had. Uh, and those of you, again, who have read my book, you know the big one was what I call the big man dream, which literally predicted 20 years of my life before it happened. It was a dream that I had had as a young man. It was very vivid. I always remembered it, but didn't really think about it too much. And 20 years later, I started to write it down and... As I was writing it down, I, I couldn't believe it. I said, this dream has predicted almost everything that has happened up to this point, and there was a little, a little bit left to still to happen, and in fact, that came true as well. Uh, the spiritual literature is full of accounts of precognitive dreams that seem unbelievable until they happen to you, and then you really take notice. To me, it's even more startling than telepathy, because... This is communication that is outside of time, not just outside of space, but it means that our restricted view of time cannot be the whole story. Now, let me say that in my experience of both telepathy and precognitive dreams and things like that, they were never under my control. I could not look at somebody and read their mind. I could not go to sleep tonight and say, well, I want a precognitive dream. What's going to happen with the stock market tomorrow? Or something like that. And I have never met anybody who could consistently do this. Read minds or predict the future. In a reliable way, on command, there seem to be people who have more incidences of this occur to them, and perhaps at a certain time in their life or not. But I have never met anybody who could really you know, go to Las Vegas and come back a millionaire. So it seems that these phenomena are not under, at least our ego control. So finally, let's then look at synchronistic occurrences. These are these everyday events that sort of come together. A 
a famous one, and the one that Jung uses as an example in his work, is that he had a patient who had dreamed about a scarab. You know, a scarab is a big beetle kind of insect. And she was telling him the dream in his office. It was a hot summer day, and his window was open. And she remembered the dream, but she was having trouble interpreting it. It seemed clear to Young, but he wanted her to come to her own insight about it. And they were struggling with this dream, and suddenly there was this tapping on the window, and he looked at the window, and there was the very scarab that she had dreamed about, and he grabbed it, and he said, here is your scarab. And the shock of the two things coming together apparently created some breakthrough for her. He doesn't go into the details. But this is where you're thinking about something, and then it appears in the environment, and it appears in a meaningful way. In this case, it was uh, a very intense <coughs> moment for them, so its appearance was very meaningful. Another famous one in more modern times is Shirley MacLaine's trip to the Bodhi Tree bookstore, where a book fell off the shelf and hit her on the head or something, and she took it home and read it, and, and it turned her life around. And I worked at the Bodhi Tree bookstore after this had happened, and it's true, books do fall off the shelf spontaneously, quite frequently in a bookstore. I don't, uh, and people are always, of course, coming to the Bodhi Tree, wandering around, waiting for a book that <laughs> fall off the shelf and hit them on the head, and occasionally one did, and they would certainly buy it and take it home, and it, maybe it did change their life. Uh, and then, of course, Vip gave us a couple of examples in his question. So, uh, again, these occurrences are recognized in all spiritual traditions, and even some traditions have tried to find ways to sort of systematize this. And I think this is where things like, oh, books of omen reading come from. Reading omens is really trying to read synchronicity into events. So you cut open the entrails of a goat, and you see spots on its liver, and the next day the battle is won. And so maybe there's a connection here. And I think in the past, uh, cultures have tried to formalize this in a certain sense to see, is there a pattern to this? Uh, I think astrology is a very formal system, but basically it's based on the idea of synchronistic events, the position of the stars at the time of your birth. There's no apparent causal connection here, but it's a synchronistic connection. The I Ching is another example that depends on synchronicity. Your state of mind at the time you throw some coins or pull some yarrow stocks and then you go read something that is reflecting what's going on in your life at that moment. This depends on a synchronistic connection. I personally do not believe that these systems are very reliable. I'm not a great believer in astrology. I don't believe in uh, reading goat entrails and I have used the I Ching occasionally, and I must say, sometimes found startling results. But again, I have never found them to be uh, as reliable as, for instance, uh, scientific theories and so forth. And if we take the definition of synchronistic events as being a-causal, that's not surprising. It's almost by definition you cannot systematize them. If you could systematize them, then almost by definition they would be causal. So... From my point of view, paranormal phenomena certainly exist in our modern scientific sense of it, but the conclusion is they do not seem to be controllable. They seem to be spontaneous, or let's put it this way, they're not controllable by the ego. Now, how can we explain the existence of paranormal phenomena if they do in fact exist? 
And if they do in fact exist, this changes our ideas of space and time considerably. And if you are a hard-boiled materialist, it's really going to change your ideas, or at least force you to question your ideas, let me put it that way. Jung himself recognized this, and this is what he wrote. Synchronistic phenomena prove that a content perceived by an observer can at the same time be represented by an outside event without any causal connection. From this it follows that either the psyche cannot be localized in space or that space is relative to the psyche. The same applies to the temporal determination of the psyche and the psychic relativity of time. I do not need to emphasize that the verification of these findings must have far-reaching consequences. And indeed they do. So first let's take a brief look at cities and modern science. Now as I said, Tom McFarlane is going to come next Sunday and really go into this in detail. But for those of you particularly who perhaps still have an allegiance to an old materialist paradigm and think that this is scientific, you are mistaken. And when we look at what modern science does say, these uh, phenomena don't seem quite so incredible. Now, I'm talking about, um, when I talk about modern science, I'm talking about particularly the revolution of quantum mechanics that occurred in the first part of the last century, which, by the way, is the basis of all science. Quantum mechanics is not something out here. It is the basis of all physics, and all physics is the basis of all chemistry, and all chemistry is the basis of all biology. So we are talking about the foundation of all of modern science. In the old materialist paradigm, anything that did not have a physical cause could not exist. So the old materialist paradigm categorically denied the existence of this phenomenon. Quantum mechanics is a lot more flexible. There are two views of causality in quantum mechanics. Probably the most prevalent, the standard version, is that causality does not exist, oddly enough. There is no such thing as physical causality. It is an illusion. Fundamental processes are spontaneous, and they are predictable based on the probability of their occurrence at a particular time and place, but there is no causal reason why they happen. So an electron jumping from one state to another, which does not go through space and time, they just appear in another state, gives off a photon. When and where and how and why that photon is given off, there is no explanation for it. It's not that scientists don't know something here. It is that it just happens. And all the stuff that we experience, I'm talking from a scientific point of view now, is nothing but these little atoms and electrons and stuff doing their numbers. And it all comes out looking like this. And the probabilities start to add up so we can be 99.9999% certain that when you go out here and you look at your car, you'll see it where you left it. But there is a non-zero probability that it might not be where you left it. It might be on 11th Street. It is within the realm of possibility. Highly improbable, but possible. Now, a lot of 
physicists uh, did not like this aspect of quantum mechanics. This is called indeterminism. They did not like to throw out causality, because causality, up until the, the, the advent of quantum mechanics, has been the foundation of physics. So people like Einstein and Schrodinger, who was the one who invented the most important <coughs> equation of quantum mechanics, thought there must be some other explanation. There must be some other causes that, uh, that we're just not aware of. And various tests and experiments have shown during the course of the 20th century that if there are what physicists call these hidden variables, if they do exist, then they are outside of space-time. They cannot be in space-time. So here's what Henry Strapp, a modern physicist, says. Everything we know about nature is in accord with the idea that the fundamental processes in nature lies outside space-time, but generates events that can be located in space-time. So in other words, there's another dimension beyond the physical dimension, beyond the realm of appearances, that is influencing what is going on here. Now, Interestingly enough, both these interpretations, the a-causal interpretation and the hidden variable interpretation, are very consistent with mystical worldviews of other cultures and other times and other places. Ultimately, from a mystical point of view, all <coughs> events are spontaneous. Spontaneous in the sense of this, if we trace back a causal chain. We either get to infinite regress, and there are lots of philosophical problems with infinite regress, or we get to a first cause. And particularly in the West, everybody has always assumed we have to get to a first cause. But then the first cause cannot have a cause. Otherwise, it will not be the first cause. So it is spontaneous. It's talked about in terms of you know, God's will or an act of God or something like that, but it's a completely free, spontaneous, undetermined event. So, in a sense, even though we have a, a chain of relative causes, we get back to something that is not caused. In the meantime, however, most mystical worldviews, in fact, most uh, spiritual worldviews, have recognized an intermediary realm between this realm of appearances and that ultimate or absolute uh, nature that is a kind of realm of hidden variables that influences this world of appearances. And all spiritual traditions divide up the cosmos, and I mean all form whatsoever, even if it's not physical form, divide up the cosmos into at least three realms. And some of them then have subdivisions and are much more complicated, but at least three realms. And they are generically or generally called the gross, the subtle, and the absolute. And I have a diagram up here, uh, a simplistic way of looking at them. The gross, and gross, by the way, does not mean, oh, it's gross, it's terrible. It's, when, I, when I first started using that word, some people thought this meant, oh, yucky. Gross simply means it's, you know, sensory, and has that kind of quality. Uh, it appears to our, to our senses. The gross realm uh, is the outer rind of this. 
The inner realm, the subtle realm, is the realm of dreams and visions and so forth. In the uh, Western Abrahamic traditions, it's the realm of angels. Uh, angels, Greek word that means messengers that uh, come from the spirit realm to the uh, gross realm and so forth. Uh, in the East, it's uh, the subtle realm is the realm of the gods, uh, avatars, gurus in their disincarnate forms and so on and so forth. And the subtle realm functions as an intermediary between the absolute, which is the core, ground, formless uh, basis of it all. So that's one way to diagram it. This goes all the way back to, as far as we can tell, shamanic times. This is what, for instance, the Lakota um, Native American Black Elk says about Crazy Horse, about a vision Crazy Horse had. Crazy Horse dreamed and went into the world where there is nothing but the spirits of all things. That is the real world beyond this one. And everything we see here is something like a shadow from that world. This is a very uh, succinctly put description of how uh, spiritual cultures, sacred cultures, have experienced the cosmos. This subtle realm we uh, might also call the archetypal realm, the realm of the archetypes as Plato described them, and the realm of the archetypes as Jung described them. So, then, given this structure, we can diagram this in a three-dimensional way, or looking at it from the, as though it were three-dimensional. And we can say this is the gross realm down here. And the gross realm has, I'm drawing this as a cone, you can imagine this being a cone, but uh, a cone with a direction, or a pyramid or a cone. Uh, actually, let's, let's, keep it, uh, let's keep it a pyramid here. I don't know why this will get more confused. Here, let me start this over. <laughs> I should have done this before you came, but I didn't want to have you distracted by trying to figure out what the hell that was. Okay. Now, we can think of this as the gross realm in here. And there's an arrow of time. I'm talking, again, from a scientific point of view. And this is our normal, in this culture, experience of time. That, you know, this, this was uh, yesterday. This was the past. And that's the future. And we're, wherever we are, we're in the present. Now, one of the problems that we have with explaining or accepting something like precognition, it seems just impossible to know what's going to go on there. But if we look at causality as not only being horizontal in this sense, that past events cause present events cause future events, but also we look at causality as being vertical, as an influence coming from down here, and we look at ourselves as being little, uh, really we're, what we are as little windows. No, I'm <laughs> Yeah, that's gross. <laughs> <laughs> 
I'll draw an eye down here. We look down here, we look out down here at the gross realm, and also, of course, sense and touch and so forth. This is the realm of our, you might say, like our personal mind. Each one of us has a little personal mind or psyche. And, uh, but this bleeds into the whole realm of the uh, subtle realm, which is permeable to the absolute realm. That's why I drew just a dotted line here. Now, if we think of causality not only uh, happening in a horizontal fashion, but a vertical fashion, from the point of view of the absolute, all time is present always together. You see what I'm talking about? So it's very possible that not that we can know from the point of view of our personal mind what is going on and what is going to happen, but that we can be influenced by uh, material coming from this deeper, subtle realm that is a non-physical realm. And we can just see from this very simplistic diagram how it is possible that from this point of view, all this is already known in a way. It's known the way the present is known. Does everybody follow what I'm talking about here? Okay. <clears throat> From a mystical point of view, in mystical traditions, ultimately, the self and the cosmos are identical. So we feel that we are these little windows sort of uh, poking through from the subtle realm into the gross realm. Everything back here, you know, our imagination, dreams, all that belongs to the subtle realm, even actually our thoughts. They're very gross forms of subtle realm phenomena. But, so then we start to feel we are this little, you know, bubble here. But this is, of course, the basis of illusion in all mystical traditions. This isn't true. What we are is this whole thing, the whole pyramid. So this is not a description of uh, something that is just objective or just subjective. So this vertical direction of causality transcends subject-object dichotomy, which again is why, for instance, if we think of a kind of a signal coming here uh, through this particular body-mind, and from the same place, a signal comes here into the gross world. So you look at a stone, a, a blue stone, some interesting different color stone, just when you've been dreaming about a blue stone here. But you see, there's no absolute difference between subject and object from this point of view. It's transcendent. So this is, again, this is just a way to try to make some sense out of all this stuff. Now, let me say, before going any further, that from a mystical point of view, all the distinctions that we draw here, that I've drawn here, all the distinctions that anybody has ever drawn, any culture, any person, are all imaginary. 
That means, literally, they are creations of the mind. It does not mean they are simply imaginary the way we say, oh, you just imagined that in our most common parlance. It means, literally, that they are created by the mind. And since all worlds are forms of distinction, we distinguish this from that, me from you, and so forth. Since all worlds, any possible world, that you could live in is a world of forms of distinction. It means all worlds are imaginary. The East is known for this kind of uh, spiritual philosophy, but it's exactly in the West too. Here's Ibn Arabi, great Sufi master. The cosmos is but a fantasy without any real existence, which is another meaning of the imagination. That is to say, you imagine that the cosmos is something separate and self-sufficient outside the reality, while in truth it is not so. And then Meister Eckhart, great Christian mystic, says it very simply, everything stands for God, and you see only God in all the world. Now, this too, as an ultimate view, is not inconsistent with modern science. Let me read you something by a physicist down at the University of Berkeley, Nick Herbert. And he writes, Another way to look at quantum systems is to think of such systems as seamless holes. In order to measure such a system, one is obliged to break that wholeness, to cut open the apple of knowledge, as it were. How we make the necessary cut determines in part how that system will appear to our eyes. But unobserved, the system has no cuts at all and is, in a sense, indescribable by conventional means. So this is why I said that uh, if you are hanging on to an old materialist worldview, then, of course, all this is going to sound like nonsense. But once we enter the world of modern science, it doesn't quite sound so nonsensical anymore. The other import, though, of all this is even when we are dealing with subtle realm phenomena, we are dealing in the world of illusion, of imagination. No different, in that sense, from gross-level phenomena. So this is very, very important. Because when we come to the question, what is the significance or the value of these paranormal phenomena, we have to be cautious. We have to be careful. From a mystical point of view, they have no more nor less intrinsic value than anything else, any other forms that appear. Intrinsic value here. My big man dream that changed my life, that was precognitive, has no more value than this pencil, intrinsically. It is no more or less divine. They are all equally divine. So, Keeping that in mind, let's go then through our categories, our classes of phenomena. Uh, miracles, big-time miracles, or small alterations, if, in fact, they do happen. In, in point of fact, from a quantum point of view, they can happen to anybody, anytime. You don't necessarily have to be a spiritual seeker to find that 
you know, the letter that you put in the drawer, and when you went to look for it again, it wasn't in the drawer, but when you came back the third time, it was in the drawer. What we call faith healing, again, is not necessarily connected to faith. There are all sorts of things happen in modern science that modern science cannot explain. Uh, just to mention two of the most common ones, there's spontaneous remission from cancer, and there's the well-known placebo effect. I'm always amazed that scientists are, you know, aren't more than the placebo effect. You know what the placebo effect is? If I give 50 people a sugar pill and tell them they're getting medicine for their problem, something like 10% are going to start getting better. There's no causal connection whatsoever. It's only a mental connection. And all legitimate tests have to be done in relation to control groups where they give placebo pills because if you test anything without the control group, you will get just the placebo effect. But the placebo effect itself is kind of fascinating, isn't it? How does it work? What does that mean? There's no physical causal connection. And yet, statistically, it fits exactly the definition of synchronicity. It's beyond probability. It's not just coincidence. It's meaningful and so forth. But, you know, atheists uh, experience a spontaneous remission from cancer. And any control group, seekers or not, will uh, exhibit the placebo effect. So, <clears throat> these things don't necessarily have any spiritual significance. Extrasensory perception is not necessarily spiritual. And it can happen to people who aren't on any spiritual path. My mother had a very startling extrasensory experience, which I think is worth relating. She, to me, is an absolutely credible witness. Uh, she had known this guy when she was a teenager, and he was madly in love with her, wanted to marry her. So they have kind of you know, strong, what the Buddhists would say, karmic connection here. But she turned him down, and she grew up in Seattle. And they were both in Seattle, and they went their separate ways. She went to San Francisco and eventually ended up in New York, and he eventually ended up in Chicago. And for a while, they still wrote each other, but after a while, the correspondences, you know, died down. And a number of years had gone by, and she hadn't seen him, she hadn't talked to him, she hadn't even thought about him. And one night, she woke up, and she just could not get him out of her mind. And she went to work, and all day she was totally distracted. She could not do her work and this and that. So finally, in the afternoon, she called where he had last worked, which was for a Chicago newspaper. And she called the newspaper, and I don't remember his name, but she said, is Mr. Smith there? And the you know, receptionist put her through to the office, and a woman came on the phone, and she said, is Mr. Smith there? And the woman said, are you a relative or a, a close friend or something? She said, well, I'm... I knew him long ago, and I haven't, you know, talked to him in a long time. She said, well, Mr. Smith died last night. And she just put down the telephone. She couldn't even answer. She was... Now, that is a clear-cut case of ESP. If you've had any experience yourself, you recognize it. She is not spiritual. She was never spiritual in her life. So here, just an example of how a very powerful ESP experience can happen to somebody who's not particularly spiritual. Uh, and then, of course, synchronistic events aren't, uh, aren't necessarily spiritually significant, these little meaningful coincidences of everyday things. And just a quick little story about that. Uh, I once was down in Phoenix, and there was a Rinpoche, Tibetan Rinpoche, who was down at the same time I was. He was giving a series of teachings over a weekend, a three-day weekend. 
And I attended one or two, and then I attended the last gathering that he had. And most people have been with him throughout the whole weekend, the long weekend. And it was the evening of Sunday. And they were asking the last questions through his interpreter. And finally, one guy got up, and he had a little notepad. And he said, I noticed that the flight you flew in on was something like 1069. And then I noticed that your room number at the hotel where you're staying is 1069. And then I noticed the street number, the address where we are here now is 1069. And I think there are one or two other ones like this. It was quite amazing. It was enough to get my attention. I said, oh, really? And I was interested to see his answer. And so the translator translated. Rinpoche scratched his head. The translator Rinpoche says, doesn't mean a thing. She says, not everything like that means something. So, again, you know, just because we're having little synchronistic things happen does not mean that they are necessarily spiritually significant. But the trouble is, when people go on a spiritual path, these things tend to happen to you more. And I think the explanation is, as you go on a spiritual path, and as you weaken those boundaries of ego, and as they start to get more transparent, you just become more sensitive to these vertical influences. They're there all the time, but you just are not noticing them. You are focused so narrowly in on your worldly pursuits, and if you happen to be a, a, a materialist to boot, you are literally censoring them out. Anything that doesn't fit with your worldview is not even perceived. But when you start to relax, when those boundaries start to weaken, as I said, then you just become more sensitive to this stuff and it starts to happen more and more. There's a great danger in this because people get fascinated by these paranormal phenomena. And this is why in every tradition there are warnings about this. So Anandamoyama, a great Hindu mystic, says, having left aside sense objects, do not remain entangled in supernormal powers. Supernormal powers are but a stage. They may be beneficial, they may also be harmful, but through them you will not attain to the supreme, to the ultimate. So when we get fascinated by these paranormal phenomena, we tend to lose track of the goal. St. Augustine said, those who search for God by means of spiritual powers fall far away from him. It is the admiration that human weakness feels for the works of power which attract them, rather than the model of reverent surrender which attains the peace of God. They prefer the pride of angelic power to the devotion of angelic being. Very interesting, isn't it? We also are not just fascinated by all these things, but the ego starts to say, oh, ooh, ooh, if I could control this stuff, oh, goody, I could make a fortune. I could get that, that lover who's been shunning me, you know, it's a little black magic there I could work or whatever. So the ego gets very interested in stuff, and there's a subtle wanting to own it, to control it, to manipulate it. But ultimately... If this happens, this really becomes a, a major obstacle. It can even actually turn demonic. 
Ultimately, a spiritual path takes you beyond paranormal phenomena. It is not about accumulating more and more powers. And this is why the Sufi master Maghrebi writes, Don't speak to us of visions and miracles, for we have long ago transcended such things. We saw them all to be illusions and dreams, and dauntlessly we passed beyond them. Because I said, even the subtle realm is in the realm of maya, of illusion, of dream. There's a wonderful little story that uh, comes from India about the place of miracles. This disciple has been studying with this guru, and the guru has been teaching him how to meditate, these deep kinds of uh, yogic uh, meditations, you know, if you go into deep absorptions. And he sends him off to a cave, and the disciple goes off to the Himalayas, stays in this cave for 20 years, meditating. And he goes off to the cave, and he meditates for 20 years. And he comes out, and he sees his uh, master, and his master's across a river. And he's on the other side. And he says, oh, master, master, master. And the master looks up, and he says, look, look what I can do. And he walks across the river to the master. And he's just so pleased, you know. And the master looks at him and says, you spent 20 years in a cave learning a 50-cent trick? <laughs> and the student is really taken aback. He says, what do you mean? And the master points to a ferryman. He says, I'd get the ferryman to take me across the river for 50 cents. <laughs> so it's a cute story, but you see, this is what... Uh, the Sufi master, Maghrebi, was talking about. This is still in the realm of illusion. You're not getting to the goal. The value of all these phenomena, like the value of any phenomena that happens in your life, is does it lead to enlightenment? Does it lead to gnosis? Does it lead to liberation? Does it lead to union with the divine? That's the question we always have to ask. We can't become fascinated or enthralled by just the fact of this stuff happening. So we have to be careful. Now, it can have a relative value, and it can have a profound one in someone's life as long as they maintain this perspective. Witnessing or encountering as some sort of physical miracle can really change your life around. It can really convince you that there is more in heaven and earth than you have dreamed of in your philosophy. <clears throat> and it can propel you on a search for truth. So it could be very, very important for somebody to see water changed into wine. ESP, extrasensory perception, precognition, telepathy, can be a channel for true, authentic spiritual guidance and teaching. And spiritual seekers often start having dreams, for instance, of their teachers, their gurus, who give them teachings in the dream. Valuable, right-on teachings that are just for them, customized, because they're no longer sitting in a room full of other disciples or students. So this can be a very direct channel for that. And there are countless accounts of that happening. And of course, I myself had a subtle realm teacher who gave me just that kind of teaching. And in fact, because of my situation, because I was such a hard-headed materialist cynic, I would not have trusted a in-flesh teacher. So if we're looking from this point of view, the only way, if you could put it this way, I'm anthropomorphizing slightly, that the divine could reach this dummy 
was to go directly, whack them on the head, and say, now you have to decide. You're either going crazy or you're going to trust this. So you can either go check yourself into a nut hut or you can follow this. I'm glad I didn't check myself into a nut hut. I wasn't that stupid. So this can be tremendously powerful. But if you get wrapped up in the question, well, what does this mean? Am I somebody special? Why has the angel of the Lord appeared to me and all that? You start taking it from an ego point of view, you're going to be in deep doo-doo. <laughs> and same thing about synchronistic events, uh, little everyday occurrences. They're amusing, but sometimes they can actually lead you to a place, a person, a teacher that's going to turn out to be tremendously valuable in your path. So again, they can be very valuable, but they ain't necessarily just because of the point they're manifested. So what we have to do is we have to keep our eye on the prize. If we lose track of the end and get fascinated by the means, then we just get stuck going round and round and round. We remain in delusion. We remain with our ego desires and aversions and all that. So if we can discern, if we can see these phenomena as, oh, yes, they are coming from another realm, yes, but where are they leading me? Are they leading me to transcend myself? Are they leading me to more selflessness? Are they leading me to more a loving, compassionate way of life? Or am I starting to want these powers for my own self-centered, egoic ends? That's the main question here to ask. I'll tell you one more quick story. When I was working at the Bodhi Tree, channeling was very popular, and there were a number of these channelers. Uh, Romtha was one, and what was there? A couple more. Emmanuel. Emmanuel was one, yes. Uh, Mafu. What? Mafu. Bafu? Mafu. Uh, I don't remember that one. Anyway, there were three or four. I think Romtha was the big one. And their tapes were selling like hotcakes. The people who were channeling and doing these seminars, you know, charging $1,000 a weekend. I mean, they were extremely popular and big sellers at the Bodhi Tree. And there was a lot of discussion and controversy among the people who worked at the Bodhi Tree, us clerks and so forth, about, well, is this real? Is this not? And, and I've forgotten which one. I think it was Romtha, but if it's not, forgive me, Romtha. But this particular one was supposed to be a 10,000-year-old being from Atlantis who was coming through. So I said, well, instead of asking, is this real? Are there really 10,000-year-old beings coming from Atlantis? Let's put on one of these tapes. This was before the store opened. We were still cleaning up. And listen to it and see what Ramtha has to say. So we put on one of the tapes and we listened to it. And you know, the advice wasn't bad. It was the kind of stuff you'd get reading Dear Abby. And... When we finished, I said, don't worry about whether there's a 10,000-year-old being from Atlantis. Not, that's not important. What is the message? Why pay $1,000 to go to a seminar when you can pay a quarter to get the newspaper and read Dear Abby every day? And besides, supposing it is a 10,000-year-old being from Atlantis, maybe it's a dummy being. <laughs> Just because it's a being hanging around for 10,000 years, you might ask questions like, why hasn't it moved on? You know what I mean? What's it still doing here? I mean, <clears throat> all these kinds of questions. You see, no matter what worldview you have, it doesn't, that's my point here, it doesn't matter. What is the value? What is the teaching? You will know the true, authentic teaching by the teaching, not by how it manifests to you. And the teaching is always the true teaching. It's selflessness, love, 
compassion, truth. That is always the teaching. So let me just then come back to Zip's question here. He asked about post-enlightenment. So, I don't know if I would say that the cities appear to me, as he put it, at a sustained level. But these, for instance, little synchronistic events are a common occurrence in my life. They are so common that there's a little sort of, oh, but I don't pay really much attention to them, usually. Often they're kind of humorous. And the fact, the very last one that happened was yesterday. I am writing the notes for this. I get to this part about exactly here, about synchronistic events in my life. The phone rings. I pick up the phone. It is a computer shop, and the man is calling for Jennifer, who had left her computer off the day before. And he says, uh, I have this computer in front of me, but I don't have any paperwork. I don't know what's wrong with it. What, what should I do with it? So I said, well, I think uh, the battery needs changing. And I didn't, know, I didn't know what kind of battery it was. I didn't really know what to tell him. And we're talking like that. And he says, oh, here she is now. And I had no idea she was going over there that day. And I said, oh, really? I said, well, I, you can talk to her. And he said, yeah, this is amazing. <laughs> I come back to write about synchronicity in my life. You see. So that's a, a cute little example. Uh, most of the time when something significant happens, something I consider significant, it has to do with my teaching work, either specifically with a student or with the center. Buying this house last year, or is it two years now? Two years ago, oh boy. This came out of, first of all, a dream. Several months before, I woke up and I just knew we were going to buy another place because we were running out of room at the center. I, it was not something I'd pondered. I mean, we'd always sort of talked about, well, someday we'll have to have a place, but I just woke up and said, I said, Jennifer, how would you like to buy a new house? And she said, oh, why are you asking me? I can tell by the tone we're going to buy a house. <laughs> <clears throat> and then we started looking for a house. And Jennifer said, well, I'll start looking, but I'm not really ready to decide. And I said, well, you know, Jennifer, if we find the right place, I mean, we have to move on it. We have put up earnest money or whatever. But, you know, you never find the right place the first time out. Well, this was the very first house we actually walked through with the idea we might buy it. We walked through one other house. We knew we didn't want it, but just to get an idea of the market that same day. And actually, we had finished looking together, I think, yes. And you would come home to do something, and I took a spin around the block and came back and said, we better go look at that, right? And she walked in. She knew we, this was the house right away. And then we still couldn't buy the house unless we could create a space because this used to be a garage and a carport. And we had went through all this trouble trying to figure out how we would convert this because it had another room on top and this and that and really would it work. And we had several of our friends who are construction contractors come and look at it and it looked like it wasn't going to work. And then I had a dream and I woke up and I said right away to Jennifer, raise high the roof beam carpenter, which is a title of an old Salinger book, which I never read, actually. I hadn't even thought of Salinger since I was a teenager, you know. Raise high the roof beam carpenter. I said it several times. And finally, we got this uh, engineer, architectural engineer over here to look at the place late at night with a flashlight. And he's looking around. And he says, oh, this will make a wonderful room. He says, you just raise up the roof like uh, in a vaulted roof. Any carpenter could do it. I said, okay, buy the house. 
Another example was, and I can't go into too much detail because it has to do with the confidence between a student, but I did have a dream, a very unusual dream. I mean, un unusual in the sense that uh, it's not part of my kind of themes and dreams. It's just totally off the wall sort of dream, very vivid. And I'm being taught something in this dream by somebody, a teacher from a different culture, totally strange and all that. I know what to make of this. And months go by and months go by, and I almost forgot it. And then I had a student come in uh, to see me about a problem. And the student started doing, in waking life, part of what I was being shown in this dream. I mean, exactly, dot, 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 you know. And then they started talking about the problem. And I said, oh, well, that teaching in the dream wasn't for me. I'm just the vehicle. That was exactly the teaching for that student. So I just passed it on. So that's another bigger example of how uh, these influences continue to work. None of this, I have to tell you, is in my control. It never has been. Now, of course, realization, you realize nothing is in your control. I mean, there is no you for anything to ever be in your control. So it's not like, oh, I'm in control of my ordinary mundane waking life, but I'm not in control of all these things. I'm not in control of my ordinary mundane waking life. I don't know the next thing that's going to come out of my mouth. You don't either, but you believe that you are. That's the only difference between us. I know that I'm totally powerless and ignorant. And you think you have some little power and have some little knowledge. And this is what realization reveals. I will uh, admit to one personal city, if we can talk that way. A city that's just for me. has nothing to do with you or my students or anything else. I have a parking city. <laughs> I am never without a parking space. Uh, the maximum I have to do is walk two blocks or drive around the block two times. And I will always have a parking space. This has never failed. One time I went to the U of O one night. Uh, I was going to China Blue Restaurant or something. I've forgotten what. And it was a basketball night. And I drove around, drove around. And I said, you know, I don't know. There's probably tomaine poisoning in the food. I shouldn't be eating it anyway. <laughs> but for 17 years, my parking city has never failed. <laughs> I want to leave, though, by saying, really, this is a fascinating subject. If any sort of paranormal phenomena start to occur to you on your spiritual path, I would not ignore it. I would pay attention with discernment and try to see what is its spiritual value and not get fascinated by the very fact that it's happening and that it's unusual or something like that. But I do want to tell you that Gnosis enlightenment, awakening, makes any sort of paranormal phenomena look totally insignificant. Because it reveals the real miracle is this, right now. All these forms, all of our experiences, whether we think they're good or bad, whether they're very exciting or just ordinary, all of them are divine self-disclosures. All the time it's happening. You don't have to wait for a miracle. Just become aware of that. And, you know, paranormal phenomena, part of it, but no more special than a blade of grass growing, or a star, or a sneeze. <laughs> Not just the pretty things like grasses and stars. I'm serious. So please keep that in mind. Try to see that. 
try to open yourself to this teaching that is manifesting all the time. Truly, everything speaks of the divine. Everything can be your teacher. As Meister Eckhart said, a stone speaks just as truly of God as my mouth. And it is true. So that's really what we should be looking for. We should be looking for the guidance, be looking for the teaching, be looking for the love. That's what we focus on. How it comes to us is secondary. It is fun, yes, but only relatively fun in this greater play of things. So that is my little talk for this morning. Do you have any questions or comments? What came to me near the end of the talk was that, uh, you know, we live with our conditioned self, and we live in, in my tradition, we call it this world, Mm -hmm. you know, and we receive that kind of conditioning, and there's all these worldviews and so on that we live with and assume. And it seems to me that um, the whole business of living, what I would call living with God in your heart, uh, or living as a space of consciousness, that whole existence is paranormal compared to this world. Yes, compared to this world. But in the limit of the absolute, there's nothing paranormal. Everything that is normal is also divine. Do you see what I mean? Now, it's interesting. In the Christian tradition, that's what Jesus was trying to get everybody to see. The kingdom of God is here. It is at hand. I mean, it it feels close only because your own delusion keeps you separate. But in reality, it's not coming in the future. In the reality, it's not distant in space or time. In reality, it is always present. We just have to open our eyes to see. Yeah. The uh, kind of fundamental Christian thing is paranormal experience of talking in tongues. And I wonder what the value of that, at least from your perspective, might be. Read uh, Paul... Corinthians 2, 13, charity, <laughs> puts it right in perspective. What's the value of prophesying and talking in tongues and all that? If you have no charity, it means nothing, valueless. Paul wasn't very impressed with that stuff, actually. Jesus himself wasn't very impressed with his own miracles, or let me put it this way, he also recognized the danger, and I don't remember exactly the uh, chapter and verse, But at one point he says to his disciples, don't rejoice that you can perform these miracles, you know, that you can control snakes and drive out demons and things like that. Rejoice that your names are written in the kingdom of God. He only performed these miracles from his point of view to attract people, to let them know that here was a teaching. But he was not giving them these teachings so that they could, I mean, the end was not so that they could go out and do a lot of miracles, then was so they could discover the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. Yeah. Um, you mentioned Yogananda's book at the beginning as an example of a guru that talked about miracles a lot. Mm-hmm. And um, in addition to that, I remember his direct words to his disciples related to that was, the road to the infinite is not a sideshow. Very nice. The road to the infinite is not a sideshow. Very well put. Thank you. The Tibetans say it's not good, it's not bad. Let it go. 
Well, that's what Anandamoy might say, basically. Or if you have any sense that you can do something through ESP or whatever, the question is, are you doing it for selfless love and compassion, or are you doing it to gain something for yourself? That's what would make the power uh, spiritually valuable or spiritually detrimental. Why don't we bring the formal part of the morning to a close? It's been a rather long one. And you're welcome to stay and have some tea and check out the library until we see you again. Peace to you all.